Tonight we're continuing our study in Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, as a reminder, we've broken our study into three categories. Uh, first, we covered already the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Christ. Then uh, we are currently engaged in nearing the end, not quite there yet, of uh, the Old Testament appearances, the personal appearances of the Lord Jesus before his incarnation, either in the presentation as a human being, as a man, or uh, in some cases presenting himself to some as a special character identified as the angel of the Lord. And uh, so far in our Christophany studied, we've We've covered all the Christophanies in the book of Genesis. We had, uh, I think, four studies in Genesis. And then we've just, we've just completed the Christophanies in the book of Exodus. And there were two, of, two studies there. I handed out the uh, outline for the ones in Exodus tonight. And then uh, what we've got ahead of us is, I think, if I, can, uh, if I can accomplish all of these in the schedule that I've got laid out, we've got two more studies I'm calling these two studies Christophanies in the writings. So this is the portion of the Old Testament scriptures that are after the first five books of the law and before the prophets. And so all of those interim books, although a couple of our, um, uh, few, uh, yeah, two of our Christophanies are actually going to be technically in the law, uh, the, the book of Numbers obviously in the law. So um, we're going to start tonight in chapter 20, but before we look at the first one, let me reread again the definition that I've written for uh, how to rightly understand what is a Christophany. The definition that I've come up with is, in a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location in an actual visible and definite way. Uh, These events are not permanent or lasting but temporary to that moment of history. Uh, Christophany is important to distinguish or not an incarnation, which of course was waiting for uh, the first coming of Christ at at Bethlehem, where he actually became a human being. But instead of an incarnation, these are presentations where he appeared as either a human or angel, but not becoming human or angel, in which he took temporarily the form of, but not the nature of a man or an angel. All right, so in our first one for tonight, we're going to look in chapter 20. And this is, we'll call this one the the second striking of the rock. This one is connected to one of the recent ones, one of the ones we studied in our last study in Exodus chapter 17, verses one through seven. I won't take us back and reread that, but remember the story is, Uh, Early in the journey through the wilderness, uh, the children of Israel, a large group of people, uh, some three million plus people uh, in the wilderness of Sinai, which was a a dry and hot region, um, they thirsted. They they needed water. And uh, in that circumstance, uh, they approached Moses with their concern, and Moses approached the Lord, and the Lord instructed Moses to take the staff, the special staff that the Lord had given him, signifying uh, that he was carrying the Lord's authority and that he was to approach a specific rock near where they were camped. And he was to take the staff and strike the rock. And the Lord had told him, I'm going to be standing on the rock that you will strike. And as he struck the rock, the rock opened and a river of water came out that was sufficient to um, satisfy the thirst of the entire nation of Israel. Then we linked 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, when Paul later refers to that event and describes spiritually that, that the, the rock was a special rock. It was a spiritual rock in a sense, even though it had physical form and reality. Uh, nevertheless, Paul identifies the rock with Christ himself because Christ was standing on the rock as it was struck. So Paul says that rock was Christ. And he doesn't mean that Jesus became a rock, but simply that he was identified with it. And then he goes on to describe 
that that rock followed them through their wilderness journey, meaning wherever they traveled in the 40 years in the wilderness, wherever they camped, the rock was nearby so that the Lord could provide water for them to drink, meaning this was a recurring Christophany, a recurring event, a miraculous event, really. So this one now is related to that, similar to that, but with a critically important difference. We'll read the first 13 verses. And the people of Israel, and this is in Numbers 20 again, the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So apparently in this circumstance, even though the rock had been following them through the wilderness, the Lord had not yet made the rock evident in this location, no doubt to test the hearts of Israel in this situation. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went, went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting was this, this secondary tent just outside of the camp of Israel where we found in our previous studies that the Lord would meet with Moses face to face and speak with him face to face as a friend speaks to his friend. So they went up from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, meaning they're seeking the Lord in this situation. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff, same staff that Moses had used on the rock before, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. And then this detail, which is a critically important detail and distinguishes this second rock event from the first one in terms of the Lord's purpose and intention. The distinguishing characteristic is Moses this time was to take the staff and tell the rock or speak to the rock before their eyes, you know, in the observation of the people and to do so to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before him, from before the Lord as he had commanded him. So the distinction here is the first rock event, the Lord told him, I'm going to stand on the rock. You take the staff, Moses. You strike the rock. The rock will break open and water will come forth and satisfy the people. This time he's to take the staff, but not use the staff to strike the rock. Instead, to stand in front of the rock and speak to the rock and the Lord would, using the words of Moses, if he obeyed the Lord, he would open the rock and bring the water, just like he did the first time, but this time without striking the rock. But what happens in verse 10 is, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, now he's speaking to the people, remember the Lord instructed him, speak to who? Speak to the rock. Instead, Moses is still focused on the complaints of the people, and Trust me, in a, in a leader's role, uh, it's easy sometimes to focus on the complaints when I should be focused on something other than that. So they're there, and he says to them, to the people, hear now, you rebels. And I think there's a bit of an attitude that we should read the tone into the words on the page here. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, the staff is in his hand, remember, and struck the rock with his staff twice. And in spite of the fact that Moses is disobedient in this action, water came out. Excuse me, turn the page here. And from there, let's see, now. Water came out. That's weird. 
I've got a missing page here. Oh, no. I just didn't turn it properly. Sorry. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, and what he means by this, the Lord means, is not that Moses and Aaron didn't believe that the Lord was the Lord, but they didn't believe in him in the sense of they did not hear his command with an intention in heart to obey it in spite of all other natural inclinations. So they did not obey him, and in that sense, they did not believe in him. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, and this is now the Lord speaking a word of judgment upon Moses and Aaron, but specifically targeting Moses here because he's ultimately responsible because the Lord had given the command to Moses. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. All right, so um, what we know is that the Lord did appear this time in a Christophany as he did before, and uh, the wording there is that the glory of the Lord appeared before them. Um, so we know that the Lord was present, and he was identified with the rock, and uh, he had commanded Moses to speak to it, but instead Moses struck the rock twice. And the big problem there in terms of, you, I want you to think in terms of how seriously the Lord took this, Moses was a, a super faithful servant of the Lord consistently over the course of a 40-year assignment of leading a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people throughout the wilderness journey. But this was Moses' weakest and worst moment in the entire 40 years of his assignment to lead the people because he, he allowed his emotions that were stirred up toward the people out of frustration with their complaints. He allowed that to overwhelm his better judgment and overwhelm his intention to obey the Lord and he struck the rock. Now, the Lord took that so seriously that the Lord gave him essentially a death penalty judgment. He didn't die immediately, but he essentially said, because you've done this one thing, this thing, it's so important, I will not allow you to enter the promised land. And of course, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we see that Moses actually did die in the wilderness during the 40-year journey. At the tail end of the 40 years, yes, but... He died in the wilderness. The Lord gave him the blessing of allowing him to go up on a mountaintop and look over the river Jordan and see the promised land with his own eyes, but he never personally entered the promised land. He died there in the wilderness. So what's, what was so important here? This is another case where we're mixing two parts of our study. One part we're currently studying, Christophanes, the appearance of the Lord, he appeared in the glory of the Lord appearing in this circumstance. The other has to do with what we call, and this is the last section of our study that's still ahead of us, the, the types of Christ, meaning the, the uh, spiritually significant symbols of Christ in the Old Testament. And this rock serves as one of those spiritually significant symbols in the sense that in the original striking of the rock incident in Exodus chapter 17, that is an image of the Lord Jesus being struck on the cross and bringing forth from his death a life-giving stream of spiritual water for all of what we would call salvation for all of the people that would ever believe in him. So in this circumstance, why is the Lord so upset that Moses strikes the rock again because it's ruining the ultimate image of the cross, which is Christ needed to be struck on the cross once, but only once. And then once he is struck on the cross, he never is to be struck again. He doesn't need to die over and over again for our sins. He sacrificed himself one single time. And from the, from the moment of his sacrifice forward, we receive all of the benefits that flow to us from the cross through speaking to Christ rather than striking Christ. 
And so Moses ruined that typological uh, picture that the Lord was painting through the event itself. And as a result, the Lord um, disciplined him with a severe discipline of ending his life in the wilderness. So the presentation here for this particular Christophany, I see it as a twofold presentation. One, the Lord presents himself as the provider of Israel's need, meaning in spite of the fact that that people were complaining, and they were, that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And in spite of the fact that Moses was disobeying, that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Nevertheless, water came out from the rock because the people needed water to survive. The Lord knew their need, and even with their failure, even with their sin, even with their hard-hearted perspective and attitude, the Lord still provided for them in their need. And secondarily, I also see this as the Lord presenting himself as the Lord of the message. What I mean by that is there was a, there was a saving picture of the cross that the Lord was, was portraying in this event of the rock and their relationship to the rock. And when Moses essentially ruined the picture, the Lord judged Moses in order to preserve in the perspective of Israel how important this message is. And the details of the message and the way that the Lord lays it out are significant. We can't change the story of the Lord and still end up with the right understanding and the right perspective. And so here the Lord presents himself as also the Lord of the message. Uh, The purpose of this particular Christophany, uh, I see, again, twofold, the Lord meeting the immediate need of his people and the Lord teaching a critical spiritual lesson about the message of the gospel through the event. All right, let's move to the next one. Uh, This one's two chapters later in Numbers 22. This one, I think most everyone will be familiar with. Uh, I'm going to lean on uh, somewhat of your familiarity. Uh, This is the event where uh, Balaam has the uh, amazing and uh, extraordinary experience of having a donkey speak to him. Now, the setting of this particular event, and I'm kind of filling in the gaps from uh, earlier in the chapter than where we're going to start, is that uh, Israel is traveling now near the land of Moab, and they're on the way to the promised land, of course. The king of Moab, whose name is Balak, he is uh, concerned that Israel is going to um, harm him. He's concerned that Israel is going to compete with him. He, he, he doesn't like the idea that this, this nation out of nowhere just has come and kind of overwhelmed his land. And so he has this bright idea, not actually, but in his mind, to um, go and hire a local prophet by the name of Balaam and he wants to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And in his mind, um, it, all of this spiritual stuff is just taking place on a horizontal level. So I can just go hire this prophet and he'll curse them as, as if the curse isn't coming from heaven, but just the curse is just a power that the prophet has that's going to then harm Israel and satisfy uh, uh, Balak's uh, desire to... Um, to dominate Israel rather than be dominated by them. And of course, what happens when Balak sends emissaries to Balaam, he offers him a significant fee to come and do this task for him, this spiritual task. And Balaam uh, initially is interested in going with them, but um, he seeks the Lord before he goes, which is wise. And the Lord commands Balaam very specifically do not go with them. And so Balaam initially refuses to go with them out of a a sense of obligation and obedience to the Lord. Uh, He's portrayed here as a true prophet, even though he's not an Israelite. He has a called relationship with the Lord where the Lord has given him the grace to function as a prophet in the earth. And so Balaam is going to maintain his right relationship with the Lord and he refuses to go with the emissaries. And then what happens from that point is that um, the king, when his emissaries return and say to him, the prophet doesn't want to uh, do what you want to hire him to do, he sends another team of emissaries 
with an even more lucrative offer to Balaam. And at this point, Balaam is now tempted to take the offer, even though he knows the Lord has commanded him not to go with the people. And of course, what happens is Balaam, because he's conflicted here, he's tempted to go with them, but he knows that the Lord doesn't want him to go. So he decides what he'll do is he goes back to the Lord and he seeks the Lord a second time. And he says, Lord, you know, they've come back with a new and better offer. Um, Is it possible for me to go with them? And uh, this time, the Lord speaks a different word to him and essentially tells him, yeah, sure, you want to go? Go ahead and go. And so Balaam leaves with the uh, emissaries with the intention to go and curse Israel as the king has, um, has uh, hired him to do. Now let's pick up in verse, we're in chapter 22. Let's pick up in verse 22. And it starts with the word, well, I'll, I'll read, um, I'll read starting in verse 20 just to get that last part of what I just described. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But, but, that word but is significant here, but God's anger was kindled because he went. Now I'll resolve in a moment, you know, why it is that the Lord told him to go, but nevertheless is angry with him for going. God's anger was kindled because he went, and this is where the Christophany event begins. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way, meaning whatever path Balaam was traveling to get to the place where he was going to curse Israel, the Lord appears in that pathway and is like not just standing there casually, but takes his stand like he is functioning now as a roadblock on the pathway. And not just as a roadblock, but it goes on to say, Uh, Now, uh, this is back to Balaam. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. All right, so here's where the, the story gets a little bit different than any of the other Christophanies we've encountered so far. Normally a Christophany is an appearance of the Lord appearing either as a man or as the angel of the Lord and appearing to some human being or some group. In this case, the Christophany begins, but Balaam does not see the Lord, the angel of the Lord, standing in his way. He is invisible to Balaam's eyes because the Lord has not opened Balaam's eyes yet to see it. But the Christophany is not invisible to the donkey, which is all part of the deeper lesson that the Lord is about to teach Balaam. So the Lord is standing in the road and uh, an additional detail is added, a drawn sword in his hand. Now, what would you draw a sword for? You're drawing a sword in order to use the sword in order to strike someone with the sword. And the implication is he has every intention of killing Balaam with the sword. Now, at this point, we have to resolve Okay, why did the Lord tell him to go with these emissaries of Balak, but then later got angry with Balaam and stands in the way with a drawn sword with the intention? And he's invisible. Balaam doesn't even see him, but he has every intention of killing Balaam. And so it seems on the surface somewhat contradictory. The resolution is we have to remember what the Lord had originally commanded Balaam. He had originally commanded him, do not go with these people. The only reason the Lord changed his direction to Balaam is because Balaam kept seeking the Lord for permission to go. And finally, the Lord relented and let him go, but wants now to teach him, you should have obeyed me on my first word and not kept seeking me to, in order to get your way, no matter that you already know what my will is and my purpose for your life is. And so, we do see, in spite of the fact that the Lord is intending to judge him, we do see the Lord still being merciful and gracious to Balaam because even though he is 
standing there with a drawn sword, he could have just gone ahead and stabbed or, or killed Balaam. But instead, he's standing there and he opens the eyes of the donkey to see him, which will then cause the donkey to react. So then we see the donkey in verse 23. The donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. He's frustrated with the donkey. He thinks the donkey is just wanting to go wherever it wants to go rather than where the rider wants it to go, which is now an image of what's happening between Balaam and the Lord. Balaam should have only gone where the Lord commanded him to go, like the donkey should, but the donkey's going where it wants to go, like Balaam is. So then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the, the donkey with his staff. So he's, he's hit the donkey three times. And the third time, the worst with the staff. And it's at that moment that the Lord then opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? You know, it's just the humor is um, so rich here. And Balaam said to the donkey, as if this is now a natural occurrence, as if he's used to having a conversation with the donkey. He doesn't stop and say, Lord, what are you doing here? This donkey's talking to me. He talks to the donkey like, you know, we just normally talk to each other like this. Balaam said to the donkey, he's answering the donkey's question. Why have you struck me three times? Oh, I'll tell you why. Because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. Now, who does have a sword in his hand? The Lord, the angel of the Lord standing right in his pathway. So again, the Lord is speaking to him. Balaam is actually in the donkey's role. And the Lord is in Balaam's role. And he is teaching him through the donkey. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Essentially, you're, you, know, you, you knew what my will was. I spoke it very clearly to you. And he's, he's exposing Balaam's heart to him, which is the perversion in his heart was the perversion of greed. It was, it was the desire to receive the reward of the wicked king of Moab and that drove him to overwhelm his better judgment and his intention to obey the Lord. All right, so the presentation here, the Lord as the protector of Israel. Because ultimately, this isn't a story about Balaam. This is a story about the king of Moab's intention to have Balaam curse Israel. And the Lord here is going to extreme measures, miraculous measures, in order to protect Israel from that curse and that harm. And the purpose of the Lord here is the Lord ensuring that Israel will not be cursed and that Israel will actually be blessed um, rather than cursed. Okay, let's move on to our next one. I got to pick up the pace here if I'm going to get through the ones I have planned tonight. The next one is in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. where the Lord is going to appear in a Christophany to Joshua. I'll start reading. This is a short one, but an important one. I'll start reading in verse 13. But the setting here is, the timing here is, Moses has died in the wilderness. The children of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, have crossed the river Jordan, and they have just now entered the promised land for the first time. And they're there for a purpose. 
What are they there to do? Why, why has the Lord brought them into the promised land? They're there to conquer the promised land. There are seven nations that inhabit the land. And the Lord's intention is to use Israel to judge those seven nations because those seven nations are exceptionally wicked and perverse nations. And then having conquered the promised land, the Lord's purpose is for them to settle it and to thrive in the land. So that's the setting. And then we'll pick up in verse 13 of chapter 5. They haven't started the, the, the conquest yet. When Joshua was by Jericho, and that's of course where they're going to start their, their attack on the promised land. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing there before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So there's a similarity here between this one and the one that we saw with Balaam just a moment ago. In both cases, the Lord appears with a drawn sword in his hand. But in the Balaam case, it was the angel of the Lord. Here it's a man, but the similarity is it's the Lord in both cases, and the Lord is appearing with a sword strapped to his side, and he has pulled the sword out of its scabbard, and he is holding the sword. And again, why do you hold a sword in your hand? You hold it in order to use it. You hold it in order to fight. So is the Lord intending to fight Joshua? That's what we have to discern as we read on here. So a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, kind of in a challenge way, because he doesn't know who this guy is. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Like, where do you stand? The line is drawn. Israel against the seven nations of the promised land. Are you with the seven nations or are you with Israel in this fight that's just about to begin. And interestingly, the man who is the Lord answers in an unexpected way. The answer is no. So he asked him an either-or question. Are you with us? The answer is no. Are you with our adversaries? The answer is no. So who is he with? He goes on to say, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, so there's a heart recognition of who he is dealing with now. What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua with words identical to what Forty years before, the Lord had said to Moses when he first called him to go to Egypt and to deliver the people of the Lord at the burning bush Christophany that we had studied, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. This is just signification, not so much that the, ter- that the actual geography of the land was holy, but because the Lord is present in that location in a special way. Wherever the Lord stands in a Christophany, that place then is altered or transformed by the Lord's presence and the the land under the Lord's feet becomes holy. And so what is going on here? Why did the Lord say no to his answer? Yes, we get that the Lord was not with the seven nations and opposing Israel, but why wouldn't the Lord tell Israel Joshua, yes, as an encouragement, when he asked him, are you with us? Why wouldn't he say, yes, I'm with you, I'm on your side? Because here what the Lord is revealing is he's not on Israel's side, which would imply that somehow Israel's in charge and the Lord is just serving Israel's purpose. What's going on here is the Lord is saying, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Israel is simply a regiment in the Lord's army, The Lord's army being greater than natural Israel. The Lord's army including all of the host of heaven. But Israel fights for the Lord, therefore they're a regiment in the Lord's army. So it's not that the Lord is with Israel, it's that Israel must be with the Lord if they are going to succeed in their conquest of the Holy Land. They're not in charge, he is, he is the commander of the Lord's army. So in this circumstance, I see 
the, the obvious, the presentation is the Lord as the commander of the army of the Lord. We would, in modern terminology, say commander-in-chief. He is the number one authority of the army of the Lord. And the purpose is the Lord revealing to Joshua, who leads Israel, of his involvement in the coming battle. And I see this specifically in this last line that he spoke to him in verse 14. Now I have come. What's the timing? The timing is the first battle of the conquest has not yet begun. And the Lord chooses that moment just before the first battle to reveal himself to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. It is now that Joshua sees it clearly and understands, it is a great encouragement because he's essentially saying, I am leading the army in this conquest so that ensures their ultimate victory. All right, let's move then from Joshua to the book of Judges, chapter 2. And this one is actually connected to the one we just studied in, in, in a uh, not, not immediately obvious way, but I'll explain the connection in a moment. We're going to read the first five verses. The setting here, though is all of chapter 1 of the book of Judges, and we won't have time to read it, but all of chapter 1 detailed what happened from the day that the Lord appeared to Joshua as commander of the army of the Lord throughout the entire duration of the effort to conquer the promised land. And what happened was Israel, in large part, succeeded, meaning they won many battles, They gained much of the territory of the promised land, but they did not completely succeed. They did not finish the conquest of the promised land. And the reason for that was there were certain pockets of resistance that in their perspective, it was just too difficult for us to finish conquering this territory. And in some cases, it was because of giants that were in the land and the special challenge uh, that those giants represented. And so um, the, the material in chapter 1 is really the, the sad story of Israel's failure to trust the Lord and to be confident that since the Lord had called them to completely conquer the land, that um, they were meant to do so, assigned to do so, and graced to do so, but it was a failure of faith on their part and confidence and a failure to commit to 100% obedience that left them short of the goal. So that's the setting. Now let's read the first five verses. The Christophany begins right in verse one. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, the angel of the Lord speaking, I brought you up from Egypt And I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is just a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to all of his covenant promises to them. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. All of their altars were dedicated to idols, idolatrous false gods, and some in particularly wicked ways where on these false idol uh, altars, they even would sacrifice, the inhabitants of the land would even sacrifice their own children to their gods. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, meaning not that he won't drive them out at all. They've already mostly driven out the inhabitants of the land, but the Lord is now pronouncing judgment on Israel for their failure to completely obey the Lord. And he's saying, because you will not trust me to completely obey me, therefore I will not finish the conquest. I will now withdraw my help so that these pockets of resistance in your land will remain. So he says, now I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Meaning what would happen in the years to come is that Israel would be 
influenced by the surrounding religious um, activity of these unconquered peoples in the land. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, which simply means the weepers, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So there, this is a, a Christophany that wasn't to a single individual like Moses or to even only to Joshua. This is a Christophany to the entire gathered nation of Israel, all the tribes gathered together. All right, so I said this was related back to the previous one, which, of course, had to do with just before the conquest started, the Lord appearing to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. You remember where Joshua was located in that appearance? He was near Jericho. So here, in this interesting description of the Christophany in verse 1, this is why you know it's, I've just learned, and it's important for us to remember, pay attention to the details in the way the Lord uh, reveals the account. The detail in verse 1 could easily be read past as insignificant, but as very significant. Verse 1, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, Bochim is where the Lord is going to appear to the people and speak to the people and pronounce judgment upon the people. That's the, the location of the appearance. But if he's planning to appear in Bochim, why doesn't he just appear in Bochim, where the people are? He doesn't. He first goes to another location where the people are not. He goes to Gilgal. Now, where is Gilgal? Gilgal is right near Jericho. He appears first in the same location where he had previously, years before, had appeared to Joshua at the beginning of the conquest as the commander of the army of the Lord. So these are what we would call bookend appearances. An appearance at the beginning of the conquest and an appearance at the end of the conquest. And these two appearances kind of sum up the Lord's intention and plan and purpose for the conquest. But because Israel has not fully obeyed the Lord, uh, this second appearance is now going to be an appearance of discipline, appearance of judgment. And he does uh, pronounce that judgment upon them. Uh, the presentation here is the Lord is the judge of Israel to let them know that he holds his people accountable to fulfill the assignments that he gives them. They had a great assignment, big assignment, conquer the promised land. And it's not going to be easy because even with the Lord's help, there's still great resistance in the land. But nevertheless, once he spoke that to them, they're now made accountable and the Lord holds them accountable and judges them for that. And the purpose is, again, the Lord holding Israel accountable to their assignment. All right, we have another one in Judges, uh, one chapter, excuse me, uh, four chapters later in chapter six. This is again another famous event, a famous appearance, uh, maybe one of the most famous Christophanies, but you may not have thought of it as a Christophany before. This is the Lord appearing to Gideon in a Christophany and calling Gideon and giving this one Israelite a special assignment, and that is he's going to function as a judge of Israel and a deliverer of Israel in their time of trouble. Um, the setting here is chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the next phrase we're to read, as a result of doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So Lord appoints seven years of disciplinary judgment by humbling Israel and causing them to be oppressed by a neighboring nation called Midian. That's the backdrop. Now the circumstance is the actual appearance. Um, Chapter 6, verse 11. I'll just read the beginning of it, but for the sake of our time, I'm not going to read the whole section. The section I've marked out is all the way through the end of verse 23. 
But let me just read the first few verses. Now, verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. That's a tree, a specific kind of tree in the land. Sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So it's harvest time, and Gideon is working for his dad. They have a field. They've, they've grown wheat and now have harvested the wheat. And rather than doing it in the way they would normally do it, Gideon's taken the wheat and he's put it in a wine press and he's climbed into the wine press and he's beating the wheat. The idea of beating the wheat is to separate the, the stalk from the grains that you want. He's beating the wheat in the wine press and the point of that is he's hiding. He's doing it out of visual range of any Midianites that might be passing by. Remember the Midianites are oppressing Israel and if any Midianites did pass by, what would they do? They would probably confiscate uh, his father's harvest. And so um, Gideon is hiding from them. And then the angel of the Lord, who's just kind of like casually sitting under a nearby tree while, while Gideon's in, hiding in the winepress, the angel of the Lord calls out to him and says this in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now there's some humor, some ironic humor that's in the Lord's greeting. But there's there's a note of truth in it as well. The truth in it is the Lord has now called him to a special assignment. And with the special assignment, the Lord will give grace. And that grace will transform Gideon to who he is just before the appearance of the Lord, to who he will be, now that the Lord has appeared to him and spoken to him, and they're going to have a whole interaction with each other. Um, the transformation is going to turn him from a scared person hiding in a wine press to a mighty man of valor who will not be afraid to show himself to Midian and will not be afraid to actually fight Midian on behalf of the Lord and behalf of Israel. And you know how that's going to take place. Gideon's army of 300 is going to is going to accomplish an amazing victory against a far more numerous uh, army of Midianites that are, that are inhabiting the land. But the point here is simply that the angel of the Lord has appeared to him for this purpose. And uh, at the end of this um, interaction, the angel of the Lord, uh, we're told, vanishes from his sight, which just emphasizes for us that this was a visible Christophany. This was an actual appearance of the Lord in which uh, Gideon saw him as, a, as a, a person that was standing before him. So the presentation here I see is the Lord is the one who calls people to special assignments. Gideon being the one in focus who was given the assignment to deliver Israel from Midian. Um, the purpose, the Lord appearing in order to call Gideon to save Israel from the circumstance. We're at the end of the seven years. The Lord ordained seven years of discipline because of the wickedness of Israel's compromises. But now that seven years has ended and now the Lord intends to set them free once again by calling this special one to a special assignment. Okay, we've got another in Judges. Actually, uh, the next two are in Judges 13. All right, these are all involving, uh, there's actually two appearances, and these are both involving Samson's parents. So Samson, at this point in chapter 13, has not been born yet. You're all familiar with the story of Samson, who he is. He, like Gideon, there's some differences between them, but like Gideon, he is called to a special assignment by the Lord. And the special assignment is he is going to Samson is going to deliver the people of God from the oppression of another neighboring foreign nation who is not oppressing Israel for no good reason, but because of the Lord's judgment. We'll read the setting here back in 
verse 1. And this is a reference to what had happened in the days of Gideon with uh, Israel doing evil and then the Lord ordaining Midian to oppress them for seven years. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they, they just can't help themselves. They're, they're once again falling into a, um, a seriously corrupted way before the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines. Now he's done with Midian. He's already judged Midian at the end of using Midian to judge Israel. And so now he, the Lord turns his attention to another neighboring nation, a nation to the south of the promised land, uh, the nation of the Philistines. And the Philistines then oppress Israel, not for seven years like in the days of Gideon, but for 40 years, an entire generation of time. Why so much longer? Because now they are repeating their rebellion. There's a layering of rebellion in the second time they have turned away from the Lord and turned to evil. And so the Lord is, because they're ramping up their evil, the Lord is ramping up his discipline of his people. If seven years didn't get their attention, maybe 40 years of judgment will get their attention. So, From here, let's read on uh, to verse 2. In this circumstance, and now we're at the end of this 40-year period nearly, but there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So this is somewhat of a, a type of what later will unfold for Israel in a, in a wonderful promise of a chosen son to deliver the people of God uh, in, the, in the birth of Christ. And the Lord speaking to Mary in that way. Here it's not a virgin birth, but nevertheless it's similar in, in that it's a, a special God-ordained birth. And there is, there is somewhat of a miraculous element involved here because she is, uh, the, the wife of Manoah, is barren physically unable to bear children. So while the text doesn't specifically tell us this, it implies that the Lord first healed her uh, and made her capable of bearing children and promised to her that she would bear a special son. Um, You shall conceive and bear a son. Verse 4, Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and uh, bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from. He did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink, so then drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. The Nazarite to God concept is just simply a child fully dedicated to the service of the Lord. And so this is the Lord's instruction to her to prepare herself for this special assignment, to be the mother of this child, and his instruction uh, about how she is to then parent or raise Samson in a particular mode, which is preparing him for this set-apart life for the Lord's service. Now, in this particular, this first uh, appearance as the angel of the Lord to the mother, I see the Lord as the provider of a son of deliverance. He's, he is the one who brings the special ones to Israel when the time comes that uh, a deliverer is needed. And then the purpose is the Lord enables Samson's mother to give birth to a special son and uh, provides that son for Israel. Now, the second part, I won't read through the whole thing just for the sake of time, but the the remainder, the second appearance in this chapter stretches all the way from verse 8 to verse 25. And this now is the appearance of the same angel of the Lord, not just to the mother, but to her husband as well. Let's read just the beginning part of this in verse 8. Then Manoah, so all Manoah, who's the husband, knows at this point, is his wife has come and told him, I've just seen the Lord. I've seen the angel of God. 
Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, which is interesting. Manoah prayed for the angel to appear to both of them, and then the Lord answered. He listened to his prayer, but answered by causing an appearance of the Lord to the woman by herself, which just simply emphasizes her special role in this assignment. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her, so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Now, there's a a long interaction between Manoah and the angel of the Lord. And there's two uh, key issues here that I want to highlight. One is Manoah asks him a question. And the question he asks him is, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord answers in kind of an unusual, somewhat evasive answer. And he says to him, why do you ask me my name, seeing it, my name, is wonderful? And uh, Manoah is kind of silenced by that answer. So uh, theologians have, have kind of wrestled with that exchange, why the Lord didn't just answer him directly and say, I am Yahweh, you know, I am the Lord, as I've previously re- revealed myself. But uh, there's a, a passage in the book of Psalms. Let me just turn and read it. It's from Psalm 139, and I think it helps to explain the Lord's answer to his question. So remember, Noah. I mean, Manoah asked, uh, what is your name? And the Lord answered uh, somewhat cryptically, why do you ask me my name since it is wonderful? And uh, the connection here is Psalm 139, verse 6, where David is speaking about what the Lord has revealed to him and he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's the same word, wonderful, that the angel uses with Manoah. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Meaning David is identifying what the Lord has caused him to know about the Lord as being too high for human comprehension. It's too wonderful. And so when the Lord answers him, why do you ask me my name? It's essentially saying to Manoah, you know, I could just tell you a word which would be my name, but you wouldn't fully get it. Understand this though, my name, when, remember the name of the Lord represents the character of the Lord, the nature of the Lord in expression. So when he says, the Lord says about his own name, it is wonderful. Seeing it is wonderful. My name is wonderful. He is essentially telling Manoah, my name is greater than you can possibly comprehend. Just clarifying and making, making uh, evident that the Lord himself has appeared to him. And then at the end of this uh, Christophany, looking down in uh, verse... Uh, Looking down in verse 20, uh, Manoah and his wife make, an, make a uh, grain offering in the previous verses to the Lord who has appeared to them. And verse 20 tells us, And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. So here the Lord doesn't simply disappear, but he identifies himself with the consuming fire that's on the altar of the sacrifice that they have made to the Lord. And the Lord ascends in their eyes back to heaven by going up as the flame itself goes up toward heaven. The Lord disappears in that specific manner. All right, so the presentation here, the Lord is the wonderful one, meaning that he, he's making himself known in the Christophany, but at the same time, he also makes it known that there is more to know about him than they are fully capable at this point of comprehending.
His name is Wonderful. And the purpose is the Lord confirming his assignment to both Manoah and to his wife to be the parents of this specially chosen and assigned uh, son that is going to be brought to them. All right, uh, we're at the end of our time, but I have one more. So let me just quickly uh, cover this one. It's in the book of 1 Kings. First Kings chapter 19. And the only reason I'm jamming this one in here is I've got just as many to cover next study. So I don't want to leave this out. Uh, this is from the circumstance of the life and ministry of Elijah the prophet. The setting is Elijah has confronted the evil king of Israel and his wife Jezebel is enraged. The king's wife Jezebel is enraged by the prophets confronting her husband. And so she basically says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And so Elijah flees from the wicked queen Jezebel and he flees into the wilderness in fear for his life. Now he's just with great courage. He's just by the Lord's assignment confronted the king. But when his wife rages against him, he's suddenly afraid of her and flees from her. Uh, let's read then from verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Meaning she's, she's locked herself by oath to killing Elijah within the next 24 hours. Verse 3, Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he's beating himself up for his fear of Jezebel. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him. Now at this point in the story, it may just be an ordinary angel. Again, as I've said before, no angel is exactly ordinary, but compared to the angel of the Lord, there are just regular, actual angels. And it could be just a regular angel, but let's read on. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And now verse 7 tells us an additional detail about this angel. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Now the reason why in the text the angel is in the first case just described as an angel, and the second case is the angel of the Lord, is that it's kind of, it's kind of, showing us the dawning comprehension in Elijah's perspective. At first, he's woken up by someone who he just thinks is an angel. But now the second time, there's a, there's a greater revelation involved. And then the angel of the Lord, verse 7, came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, meaning he didn't eat or drink another time for the next 40 days and 40 nights because he was being sustained by angelic provision. But greater than angelic, the actual angel of the Lord, the Lord himself was spiritually sustaining him. Just like Moses was sustained 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain of God, that's where Elijah's heading. He's going to meet God there on the mount of God on Mount Sinai, and the Lord sustains him in the same kind of way. So the presentation here, the Lord as provider, when Elijah most needs special heavenly provision, and the Lord is restorer, meaning he was, his heart was fading fast. He was ready to die. He just wanted to be done with it all and overwhelmed by fear and um, anxiety over the circumstance and the Lord restoring not just his physical well-being, but restoring his heart to right perspective in order to go and meet with God. And the purpose, the Lord strengthening his servant for the journey ahead because the journey is a journey appointed 
by the Lord, and the Lord is waiting for him at the end of that journey on Mount Sinai in order to deal most deeply with his heart when he most needs the Lord's attention. All right, that brings us to the end of part one of our studies of the Christophanies through the writings. We have one final Christophany study, Lord willing, next Thursday night. And then following that, David will be um, beginning his study through um, the book of Esther. God bless you for coming tonight. I have a question.